Welcome to the What UK Thinks podcast, a series looking at what people think the UK's future relationship with the EU should look like. My name's Ian Montague, and together with Sir John Curtis and Alex Scholes, we'll be talking about the continuing impact of Brexit on politics in the UK. And today, a week ahead of elections to the Northern Ireland Assembly, we're joined by Katie Haywood, Professor of Political Sociology at Queen's University Belfast and Senior Fellow at the UK in a Change in Europe. We'll be chatting to Katie about where the parties stand in the lead up to the election, the future of the Northern Ireland Protocol, and the impact that Brexit has had on the political landscape in Northern Ireland. This is what UK thinks. Welcome to the latest What UK Thinks uh, podcast. We have a special uh, podcast for you today on May the 5th. There is an assembly election in Northern Ireland. And of course, the role of Northern Ireland in the post-Brexit world is one that was of considerable controversy before eventually agreement was reached uh, between the UK and the European Union over the UK's terms of withdrawal. And it continues to be a source of uh, controversy uh, since. Uh, So we have with us today uh, one of the real experts on the politics of the Northern Ireland Protocol, um, Professor Katie Hayward from uh, Queen's University Belfast, who may occasionally be joined by her dog, Millie. Katie is uh, a professor of political sociology at Queen's University. She's also a senior fellow for the UK in a Changing Europe, which of course is the broad umbrella of the project that also uh, helps to run this website. She's also co-investigator on a project called Testing the Temperature, which is looking in particular and charting the attitudes of the public in Northern Ireland to the Northern Ireland Protocol and how it's being implemented and whether it's good or bad for Northern Ireland. And that's one of the topics we want to focus in on. She has become widely renowned for her ability not just to talk to academics, but to talk to the wider public. She was uh, the Political Studies Association Communicator of the Year in 2019. And as I already said, she's an expert on Brexit, Northern Ireland, and particularly the border uh, questions. Uh, indeed, one of her recent uh, publications is What Do We Know and What Should We Do About uh, the Irish Border? So, Katie, uh, welcome to the What UK Thinks podcast. Thank you very much for having me, John. Not at all. Ian. Yeah, thanks, John. Hiya, Katie. So, we've got a Northern Ireland Assembly election coming up in a couple of weeks' time. And I wondered, just to, to kick us off, if you might be able to give us a, a really quick rundown on, on where we're at, really. So, you know, what's happened in the in the lead-up to this election? Uh, what's the available polling data looking like? Uh, and where do the major parties stand now that we're kind of a week or so away from that ballot? Yes, so coming into this election, we're in a slightly unusual position uh, because just before the election, we had... Uh, the resignation of the First Minister, uh, that happened at the beginning of February, and the rules are in Northern Ireland, if the First Minister resigns, uh, so too does the Deputy First Minister. So we had an executive that was very much limping along um, uh, in the lead up to uh, the um, suspension of the Assembly in, in, in um, advance of the election. And the resignation of the First Minister, who's from the DUP, 
was very much around the protocol. He said, basically, um, in effect, the DUP won't go back into power sharing, won't engage in power sharing in the executive unless um, the protocol issues that they have grave concerns over are resolved. So coming into this election, uh, we have the DUP um, very much emphasizing the question of what's going to happen with regards to the protocol. And the reason why they're so um, adamant that this needs to be addressed is because they link this into the future of Northern Ireland's place in the UK Union. And then on the other hand, we have um, Sinn Féin as the largest nationalist party feeling rather confident. They have a very different take on the protocol. And the polling at the moment suggests that they are on course to become the largest party in the assembly. And then we have the other parties who are um, very much sort of centre ground on this. The Ulster Unionist Party, very critical of the protocol once it reformed, but definitely not as hardline as the DUP. Uh, the SDLP, the Nationalist, Second Nationalist Party, um, in favour of the protocol, was very anti-Brexit, trying instead to focus rather more on some um, sort of bread and butter issues. And then the Alliance Party, the centre ground non-Alliance Party, is boosted by how well it did in 2019 elections, the European and Westminster elections. And it's coming into this election, I would say, wanting reform of the protocol, but pretty pro-protocol, was very anti-Brexit as well. And it's feeling quite confident that it may well gain seats. Um, and certainly the polling shows that it's um, on course to do so. So we have this funny situation in which this is a critical election for Northern Ireland, but yet what happens after the election is a big unknown. And that's really because of this protocol and what might happen at the UKU level to address some of the concerns that the DUP and others have. So you've given us a, a flavour there of the fact that, you know, the, the protocol has actually already played a pretty big part in the run-up to this election. And I wondered if you might be able to just give us a quick reminder of what the Northern Ireland Protocol actually looks like. So, you know, what are its origins and also what is it that it was designed to try and achieve? Yes, so um, one of the shared priorities of the UK and the EU in the Brexit negotiations was to avoid a hard border on the island of Ireland. Um, they recognise the unique circumstances on the island, um, very much connected to the Good Friday Belfast Agreement. Um, the question was, how do you avoid a hard border? What do you mean by a hard border? And, um, and whether Brexit, and particularly the kind of Brexit that the UK ended up seeking, was um, compatible with avoiding a hard border. Um, so essentially, what they ended up doing was working out special arrangements for Northern Ireland, such that um, Northern Ireland is affected by the UK-EU Trade and Cooperation Agreement, but in many ways it has um, a unique arrangement with the EU, i.e. it in effect remains part of its single market for goods, which means that you don't have to have checks and controls on goods crossing the Irish border. So in effect, Northern Ireland remains in part in the EU single market. And because checks and controls at the edge of the EU single market have to happen somewhere, they are happening instead in the Irish Sea. So this might seem obvious, but why might there need to be a hard border if Northern Ireland was not part of the EU single market? So we can see this in effect if you look at what's happening in Dover and Calais. Um, so um, essentially the edge of the single market and of course the edge of a customs union um, means something. It's a border 
for a reason. So essentially, the EU um, and presumably the UK on the other side of it wants to know what's coming in to um, its market, um, that it meets the criteria for doing so, and that if um, duties need to be paid on those goods in particular, um, then they, then that will be um, able to be processed. We think a lot in terms of customs and controls in terms of checks and physical inspections, and that's certainly true when we're thinking about um, food products, for example. Uh, but most, uh, the greatest impact of border controls and on having um, a harder border in particular is really felt away from the border in terms of the paperwork that needs to be completed. Um, and this adds um, time and cost to, to moving goods across the border. So when we think about um, a harder Irish border or indeed harder any border, it's not just around um, the need for physical inspections, which is there, but it's also about um, the additional requirements needed to move goods across that border. Um, and one of the strong arguments made during the Brexit negotiations, particularly from the Irish side, was about the integrated nature of supply chains on the island. So, for example, um, milk processing um, was used often as an example of you know, milk from both sides of the Irish border is used, is brought over and, and processed and then distributed across the island. And, and managing that kind of um, supply chain across a hard border is very difficult indeed. That the, I think, and a large part, all else aside, um, fundamentally the UK and the EU realise that it is easier to manage such checks and controls and requirements across the sea rather than across a land border partly because of the nature of the Irish border, which has over 270 crossing points um, compared to the half a dozen or so across the Irish Sea, uh, but also because of the, um, the, the nature of the crossing. You know, you're getting on a ferry, you have that key point at which um, uh, paperwork can be checked and, of course, physical checks and controls can happen as well. Now, you've touched there, I suppose, Katie, on how the, the kind of nature of the protocol can actually have a really strong impact on the kind of you know everyday practicalities of, of trading and supply chains and obviously I guess that can have a, a kind of knock-on effect on people's daily lives I suppose and and you've been running a project called testing the temperature which I guess among other things is, has been keeping a really close eye on what the public actually think about issues like the protocol and you know the kind of relationship that Northern Ireland might have with both the UK and the EU so I wondered if you might be able to tell us a little bit about the kind of overall aims of that project uh, and also, you know, what it's been able to tell us so far about the kind of broad picture of public opinion in Northern Ireland towards these sorts of key issues. Yes, so this testing the temperature um, work comes as part of a broader project on post-Brexit governance in Northern Ireland that my colleague Professor David Finnamore runs. And um, funnily enough, you know, when we were... Um, making the proposal for the project, this polling was, you know, I wouldn't say it was an afterthought, but we did have concerns about it really because we were worried that people wouldn't have heard of the protocol and wouldn't be aware of it, would you believe? Um, uh, essentially what we're doing through this polling, and it uses an online um, panel from Lucid Talk, which is the leading public opinion polling company in Northern Ireland. Um, and we're just doing it every four months. We have a set of um, six questions with many sub-questions 
and we're able to repeat the same questions um, about three or four of the same questions and then have specific ones that respond perhaps to what's been in the news in particular around the protocol um, and really what we wanted to do with this is just see how um, the people who are most affected by the protocol um, um, are, are experiencing it sorry that's Millie uh, somebody walked to walk past the house how they how they're experiencing it and then how they um how their opinion might change on it and it's been really worthwhile because um in, on the broad scheme of things we've seen um there's been a slight shift in um people's opinion over the course of the since we started it in January last year to just about on balance people are in favor of the protocol very notably we have two thirds consistently recognizing that Northern Ireland needs some, needed something specific coming out of Brexit, um, but they disagreed on what that should be. And also notably is the fact that when Britain itself began to experience some of the impacts of Brexit, particularly those border checks and controls, the disruption to supply chains, the empty supermarket shelves, uh, that's when public opinion in Northern Ireland began to warm towards the protocol because they realized we're not experiencing that. Um, and the disruption so far on the movement of goods from Britain into Northern Ireland has not been in, in those terms. It's been um, very much sort of felt behind the scenes rather than in terms of empty supermarket shelves. When we look in more detail at the data, um, particularly um, in terms of people's political opinions and identities, which obviously are very acute here, um, then we see some very interesting patterns. The way that the British government in particular have talked about the protocol is that, you know, an entire community is alienated by it and objects to it. That's not exactly true. It is certainly true that hardline unionists feel very opposed to the protocol, are very opposed to the protocol. But amongst softer unionists, um, there is more diverse opinion. And I think this is in part because if we look at those softer unionists, some of them were in favour of Brexit, but others were opposed to Brexit. And so a much more accurate understanding of public opinion on the protocol, perhaps very unsurprisingly, is that those who were pro-Remain are pretty much by and large pro-protocol, recognise that it's not perfect, but it's better than nothing, and see some opportunities from it. Those who were in favour of Brexit um, are by and large um, opposed to the protocol. So the implication, I think, of what you're saying, Katie, um, is that the nationalist community is more united in its attitude towards the protocol than is the unionist community. And that perhaps is a carryover from the way those two communities voted in the 2016 referendum. Yes, that's precisely it. So if you look at, if we, if we sort of look at people who would be describe themselves actually as like strong unionists and strong nationalists and their opinion in answer to our questions on the protocol over the past 15 months or so it's very much that they are polar opposites in their views then if you look at what softer nationalists and softer unionists thinks think on the protocol softer nationalists are too very aligned with those who are stronger nationalists in their views on the protocol and um, there's there's little difference between them in their support for the protocol. Softer unionists, as I say, they have varied opinions and there is, um, you know, in terms of strength of 
opposition to the protocol, they would be much more moderate than hardline unionists. So immediately there you see differences amongst unionists. And we mustn't forget the alliance and the non-aligned um, supporters as well. Those were very much centre ground. As I mentioned before, they were very anti-Brexit. Um, they are supportive of the protocol, but not to quite the same degree as nationalists. So yes, broadly speaking, we can see that there's a pretty clear um, rollover from views on um, Brexit itself um, and how that matches to political affiliation more broadly. So why might those who uh, think the protocol is a good idea, why they favour it, what they think it's what they think it's delivering for Northern Ireland, and equally, what are the critics most concerned about? And I guess, in particular, I guess, to what extent is this? an issue of substance, or is it really simply another version of the politics of identity uh, that arguably Northern Ireland has been about ever since 1922? So uh, to start with those who are critical of the protocol, it's very clear that it's a point of principle. Um, and Although they would have negative views about the impact of the protocol across the board, its impact on Northern Ireland's economy, its impact on political stability, fundamentally it's because they see it as undermining Northern Ireland's place in the Union. So in and of itself, checks and controls on goods coming from Britain into Northern Ireland um, are an affront, as they would see it, to Northern Ireland's place in the Union and are undermining it. Um, and it's very interesting if we look in terms of priorities coming into this election for the different supporters of different parties. For the DUP, their supporters prioritise way above all else um, Northern Ireland's place in the Union, like the constitutional question and the protocol, because they see them as, you know, integrally linked. The picture is very different for the other parties. The opinion on the protocol um, for those who are in favour of it, it's, it seems to be less about identity an increasing proportion of them um, see it as offering economic opportunities. Um, and as part of this polling, we also have um, space for people to add comments. And uh, these can be quite revealing, very interesting. Some people write very long comments. And um, we've seen an increasing proportion sort of talk about those opportunities. And there is a concern that those opportunities could be lost um, in the political melee around all of this. They also see it as protecting the Good Friday Belfast Agreement and also something that isn't often mentioned amongst unionists, but they also see the protocol as protecting and upholding um, human rights in Northern Ireland, which is an important part of the Good Friday Agreement. Uh, so that's all in the mix. Um, interestingly, though, uh, when you look across um, people from all different backgrounds, when they talk about their concerns on the protocol, they come in relation to its impact on political stability in Northern Ireland which everybody is concerned around. And that, in a funny way, is a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy in many ways. You know, the, the, the more the protocol is seen to undermine political stability, the more tension there is between parties um, about the issue itself. One of the most striking figures, I think, in your data, which is certainly very different from the picture on uh, this side of the water, is that um, 
while 45% of people distrust the EU um, in its handling of the protocol, no less than 84% of people distrust the UK. So the implication of that seems to be that the UK government has not got the confidence of either the nationalist or the unionist community. Is that correct? And if so, why are unionists so upset about the government that allegedly is trying to improve the operation of the protocol? So in in some ways, this relates to your earlier point around sort of unity um, amongst nationalists and their views on the protocol. So nationalists trust, by and large, trust the EU and trust the Irish government when it comes to handling Northern Ireland's interests with respect to the protocol. Unsurprisingly, unionists, by and large, don't. Um, but when it comes to trust in the British government, unsurprisingly, nationalists don't trust the British government um, on the protocol, and unionists don't either. Um, so overall, uh, there's been remarkable consistency across our polling um, in that there was a high point of 6% trust in the British government, uh, but most, for most of our polls, it's been at 4% and trust the British government when it comes to handling Northern Ireland's interests. But, but, but you say unsurprisingly, Katie, but this is the UK government that delivered the Brexit that a majority of the unionist community voted for, and the DUP certainly campaigned for it and helped to facilitate in the House of Commons. So how do we explain this falling out? So there's two things that work here. One is the Brexit process itself and how that was understood, the ramifications of Brexit, the suggestion that, you know, for a long time, of course, um, the question of whether a hard border was necessary or was inevitable as a result of a hard Brexit, I mean, that was very much uh, in, you know, um, in doubt from the perspective of the British government. There was a lot of different opinions expressed on that. And I'm certain that, you know, many unionists and others were sort of reassured that it was really a non-issue. Um, so, there's that whole question around what Brexit actually means in practice and what it requires. Um, and then the other dimension is, of course, um, the relationship historically between the British government and different parts of the United Kingdom. But of course, uh, Northern Ireland's relationship with, um, uh, with Britain has been obviously very particular. So it's not part of the story about the current relationship between uh, unionists and their attitude towards the UK government, uh, the fact that they feel that um, they were sold down the river by Boris Johnson uh, in the wake of the agreement that he made with the then Irish uh, Taoiseach uh, back in the autumn of 2019, which uh, essentially paved the way for the Northern Ireland Protocol coming into effect. Uh, yes, so it, it, if we remember what happened with the first version of the protocol in the withdrawal agreement negotiated by Theresa May, the DUP were very critical of what was proposed there in terms of the backstop for Northern Ireland, um, and they were supported in that by uh, you know um, significant portions of the Conservative Party. And when Boris Johnson came uh, to succeed Theresa May, it was very much... Um, with the ambition of scrapping the backstop. That 
um, meeting that he had, as you mentioned, with Tishuk Leo Varadka, was critical, and um, in a you know in a way that really was different from a lot of the rhetoric that Boris Johnson had been using. Uh, the protocol that we ended up with basically allowed for the hard Brexit that Johnson had long wanted, uh, but it did mean that that the protocol had a more significant impact on Northern Ireland in that there were no commitments now for the UK side to align with EU rules to minimise the um, effect of the Irish sea border. So the DUP did feel very betrayed by that. Um, but it is interesting that, you know, they still have obviously had a close relationship with the Prime Minister and with key players in the British government. And at Oftentimes, um, you know, DUP politicians here will refer to what they've been told privately by the prime minister or by government ministers um, in terms of what the plans are from the UK side to, to do with the protocol, i.e. always downplaying what it would mean, um, always trying to reassure them that it, um, you know, that it, it won't have the kind of implications that, that they fear. Um, and yet, at the same time, obviously, we have the realities of Brexit and the realities of the protocol. And this is why we're in a really peculiar situation at the moment, which is where citizens, as we're seeing in our polling, are concerned for political stability. Businesses are urging stability and certainty. Um, and um, I think for the most part, people accept we need to have the UK and the EU negotiating um, some amendments or corrections, if you like, to the protocol to minimise its its uh, negative impacts here. Um, so they're looking for that sort of logical way forward. Um, and yet at the same time, we have very strong political stances from the DUP, no doubt encouraged somewhat by what they've been told by the British government in terms of what might the, what the future of the protocol might be, i.e. that it could potentially be whittled away or removed altogether. And certainly we've heard several stories on that recently in terms of what the government might plan to do after the Northern Ireland election, purportedly in an effort to encourage the DUP back into power sharing. Okay, we've talked a lot about the fragmentation of the unionist community in its attitudes towards Brexit and the Northern Ireland Protocol. We've talked about the relationships between the DUP and the UK government. So how far does all of this account for the decline in DUP support, which is on a scale, if the polls are to be believed, uh, such that the uh, DUP are unlikely to come first in this election for the first time since the uh, restoration of uh, the assembly. Um, is, is this essentially the, the story of the DUP having backed a Brexit, which in the end has rebounded to their political disadvantage and that they are going to suffer the consequences on May the 5th? Yes, you're absolutely right in that support for them appears to have declined significantly. And at the same time, we have seen fragmentations in the DUP, such that we've never seen before. Interestingly enough, it's always been a party, particularly under strong leadership, such as obviously Ian Paisley, um, that has seemed to be pretty united um, um, 
on having strong positions on, on matters that um, are important to the supporters. Um, that's not the case anymore. So if you recall, Arlene Foster was effectively ousted by a portion of her party led by um, Edwin Poots, um, basically criticising her, um, amongst other things, for being too soft on some matters and reflecting some dissatisfaction with the lack of movement that was um, occurring on the protocol. Um, that didn't last very long. And then we had another leadership um, challenge. So Jeffrey Donaldson came forward. But we haven't, the party hasn't recovered since then. Um, and I think if you look at where its support has gone, some of it has moved away fairly early on to the Ulster Unionist Party. Um, and that in some way is reflecting, I think, some dissatisfaction with the way that the party handled Brexit and confronted the challenges posed by Brexit and the way that it was misled by the British government. But uh, on the other hand, it's also lost support to the hardline unionist, very strongly pro-Brexit, traditional unionist voice. Um, so it's losing, you know, it's losing support in, in both directions. So, so, so my way of thinking, it's essentially it's losing what you call the soft unionists to the Austrian unionists, the, perhaps some of whom have never voted for Brexit in the first place. Yeah. But then it's also losing a section of, it, of its hard unionist support who back Brexit but hate the Northern Ireland Protocol, the, the traditional unionist party, yeah. which is been there for quite a while, yes, but has now seemed to have become much more politically significant. Uh, it, it's gone in that direction. And therefore, we're basically looking at the political fragmentation of the unionist movement in Northern Ireland. Yes. Now, it's always been fragmented and there's always been a spectrum of um, unionist opinion, but it's very acute now and very evident. Um, and one thing that the DUP is trying to do in its approach into this election is to reclaim its position as the voice of unionism, the strongest defender of the union. I mean, you mentioned that the TUV has become more politically significant and in many ways it, it has, uh, but we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that there's only ever had one MLA in Jim Allister. Um, and although it's standing um, candidates in all constituencies, um, we don't, you know, it's doubtful how many seats it's going to gain. Um, it's very much a sort of a one, you know, one man party. But it's been given significance because the DUP is, you know, almost going out of its way to share platforms with the TUV and be seen to say the same things as the TUV, perhaps even more loudly. Um, the only thing that's slightly different between the two of them is that the TUV is very critical, if not anti-Good Friday Belfast Agreement. The DUP hasn't gone there yet, but... This is why this election is very interesting because, you know, how long will the DUP be able to manage to say that it's broadly, you know, pro Good Friday Agreement, pro power sharing, you know, pro having the Stormont institutions functioning, etc., um, in in a situation in which it's increasingly associating itself with and using the same rhetoric as people who are very strongly anti-agreement. Uh, and very critical of the principle of power sharing itself. So presumably one implication of what you're saying is that the DUP might be hoping to profit from the second and subsequent preferences of TUV supporters under the uh, STV system, such that their loss of seats may not be commensurate with their loss of first preferences. Yes, so there's two things that are important coming into this. So we have 
who's the largest party who gets the most seats but then there's also the who's the largest political designation because uh, it's very complicated but those two things matter the most when it comes to um the formation of the executive by political designation you mean unionist or nationalist which which are these two groups the parties sign up to unionist nationalist or other and um interestingly if you look at again this is polling data which suggests where those transfers will go in terms of second preference third preference etc where the dup will give their preference you know will give second preference etc to the tuv and to the uup um uup supporters are more likely in some cases to give it to the alliance party and then to the DUP, but very closely behind that, to the SDLP, extraordinarily. So um, those transfers are absolutely critical. And this is why the game played by the DUP coming into this election is slightly risky, because they are very much making this about the protocol and thus about the future of the union as they see it. Um, but in so doing, they are at risk of alienating um, um, quite a big swathe of unionists who, um, you know, who feel uncomfortable, particularly with the risk of becoming increasingly anti-Good Friday Belfast Agreement. And therefore there is a risk that the national, well, risk from their, their perspective that the nationalist bloc might prove to be the bigger of the two as a consequence of those union Precisely. Um, Precisely. But your, your mention of the alliance takes me, takes us nicely towards the other question I want to ask. Um, what role, if any, does this story of Brexit and the Northern Ireland Protocol play in the increased support for the Alliance Party, which has been evident now for quite a while in elections in Northern Ireland? So the success of the Alliance Party um, in 2019, I think, was very much connected to um, the pro-Remain sentiment that existed in Northern Ireland. We had people who were voting in the European elections and in the Westminster elections for alliance who otherwise wouldn't have voted. And I think that's very much connected to the Remain views and the hope that um, many of them had then of a second referendum. Now, the we also see an important element in all of this with respect to the leadership of the Alliance Party. So Naomi Long, who's Minister of Justice, is very um, popular leader. She's quite an impressive political player. And her means of trying to, you know, she's constantly focusing on other issues that might be more, you know, familiar across the UK in terms of, you know, healthcare and education and um, cost of living crisis, et cetera, et cetera. And um, it'll be interesting to see how well the party does in this election. Um, Certainly there's a sense of momentum, as I mentioned before, behind Alliance, Um, a lot of new candidates, younger candidates, and um, very clearly pro-protocol and also pro-Good Friday Agreement as well. Okay, let's move on to, uh, away from uh, the analysis, to the role of the realm of speculation, Katie. (laughs) You'd get you to chance your arms. If if indeed Sinn Féin do emerge as largest party, not necessarily because they get more votes than last time, but simply because of the decline of the DUP, what, what do you think might be the consequence of that? So the rules are that normally it's the largest party from the largest political designation who gets to choose the first minister position. If um, if we have uh, it that the largest party is not from the largest political designation, then they, um, according to the rules of the St Andrews Agreement, 
that party gets to nominate the first minister. So the indications are that Sinn Féin is likely to become the largest party, gets to nominate the first minister, and straight up, we have a problem, right? Because we know that um, uh, not only are the DUP refusing to uh, to go back into power sharing until the protocol matters are resolved, um, both the DUP and the UUP so far have failed to say explicitly that they would be willing to take up the position of deputy first minister if Sinn Féin held the first minister's position. So then we have the problem in terms of how the executive would be formed because everything follows on from that, but you need the first minister and deputy first minister to be nominated first. Um, what's happened um, recently, so uh, in legislation that has been recently passed in Westminster following on from the new decade new approach agreement that saw the institutions reestablished in January, 2020, was that um, we aren't immediately in a crisis the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland is no longer compelled to call an election um, in such a situation where you don't have a first minister and deputy first minister. Instead, there's um, up to six months of negotiation to try and al allow for the formation of an executive. So in, 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 in some ways, that's good in that, you know, the time pressure is off. It allows space for discussion and negotiation. Um, but the question is, what happens in that space? And... Um, on the one hand, we know that the DUP and most likely the British government will point to the, you know, this stalemate in the formation of the online executive as being evidence of the of a crisis over the protocol, and will use it to try and push for more movement from the EU. In the meantime, Sinn Féin will probably say, um, you know, the DUP's refusal to share power, etc., just shows how dysfunctional all of this is. And even if it's not happening at the leadership level, we can expect grassroots support for Sinn Féin to be increasingly calling for some kind of dramatic action and more push towards a border poll. Which takes us nicely into the ultimate question. Has Brexit significantly undermined the union for Northern Ireland? If, we, if we're looking at the Northern Ireland Life and Time survey data, what's been very interesting has been to see how um, people of all different backgrounds and political perspectives think that Brexit has made United Ireland more likely. And I suspect the people from different backgrounds view this for different reasons. Some would blame the British government, some would blame the Irish government, etc. Um, but I think in and of itself, that expectation of Irish unity, and particularly on the part of nationalists and indeed non-aligned, uh, more towards being in favour of, more strongly in favour of Irish unity. Um, no doubt that has implications for the union. And, um, you know, such things as a border poll and Irish unification obviously don't happen overnight. These are long processes. And I do think that what happens at this election immediately after it, and in particular the British government's reaction to that, will be really important in determining the, even the, the approach that's been taken to um, to handling these issues, i.e. Whether, whether people feel that political stability can just about be maintained in Northern Ireland to handle all of this in a way that people would like to see, or whether there is some kind of um, increasing fragmentation um, and difficulty in simply holding Northern Ireland together. Thanks, Katie. Alex? 
Hi, Katie. You, you mentioned there that the proportion of those in Northern Ireland who think a united Ireland is more likely has increased recently. I'm just wondering if the proportion of those who think a united Ireland is desirable has increased in the same way in recent years. Yes. So steadily we've seen Irish nationalists um, and obviously Sinn Féin D, uh, SDLP supporters thinking that they are more in favour of Irish unity. One thing that we notice in the Northern Ireland Life Time survey from last year is that now there's a plurality of those who are non-aligned and becoming more in favour of Irish unity. Um, so that, no doubt, is connected to their pro-Remain sentiments. Still, we don't yet, there isn't any polling that, um, not reliable polling anyway, that suggests that there's a majority yet in Northern Ireland who want um, Irish unification. But um, polling across the board and survey work would suggest that there's around 50% or so who want Northern Ireland to remain in the UK. That's not a, you know, that's not an overwhelmingly strong endorsement of, um, of the union. And that figure has certainly declined since the whole Brexit process began. Katie, thank you very much indeed for incisive and clear analysis and we will doubtless, all of us, be following what happens not only on May the 5th, but also thereafter with very considerable interest. But thank you very much indeed for enabling us to understand much better what's been going on with the internal politics of Northern Ireland in the wake of the Brexit process. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much, John. Thanks, Ian. Before we go, as ever, we'd like to say thank you to the SRC and especially their UK in a changing Europe programme. We promote high quality, independent research into the constitutional future of the UK and its relationship with the EU. And we fund the work that we do here at What UK Thinks and also over at What Scotland Thinks too. And their website is a really great source of information, not just on the issues that we cover, but you can access a real wealth of high quality research that goes well beyond the realm of public attitudes towards Brexit. So please do head to ukandeu.ac.uk and have a look around if you'd like to dig a little deeper into any aspect of the Brexit process that you might be particularly interested in. To access some of the data that we've been discussing today, please do head to whatukthinks.org forward slash EU and explore the comprehensive collection of publicly available polling data that we have on there. You can see how public attitudes to all sorts of aspects of the Brexit process have changed over time and you can view our in-depth analysis of how people think the UK's relationship with the EU should look post-Brexit. And if you're interested in public attitudes towards the UK's constitutional arrangements, have a listen to the What Scotland Thinks podcast, a series looking at what people think about how Scotland, England and Wales should be governed, again with the help of the expert eye of Sir John Curtis.